Hello and welcome back, listeners. We're going to be launching into a brand new series called More Research is Needed. We're going to help you all become, hopefully, better consumers of the research that's out there. Research is a hugely valuable part of our profession, and we always had the running joke that in PT school, the conclusion of every systematic review that existed was, more research is needed. But the truth is, more research is needed. We need to keep improving the body of knowledge that exists to help us all challenge our thoughts, become better therapists, reach different patient populations. But the question is, how exactly do we do that with the plethora of options that exist and the plethora of opinions that seem to differ greatly? What is the best conclusion or is more research needed? Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast. Brought to you by Spooner. Welcome back to the Therapist in Motion podcast. This is Paul. I am joined today by my regular colleague, Dan Mariowski. Hello, hello. And our newest uh, and greatest entry to the practice performance team, Keske Kano. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you both for being here. So... As we said, we're going to talk a little about more research being needed today. And to, to kick things off, I'm going to keep it simple. You know, if we look at the kind of polar opposites that exist in the world, uh, particularly research, we have the over-exaggerated idea that research must be supported, or research must support everything that we do. It has to be research-based, has to be evidence-based, has to be high-quality, you know, randomized reviews and high-quality peer evidence that we utilize to determine the best intervention. Compare and contrasting that to the individual that says, no, function. It has to fit function. It has to fit what the person's going to do in real life. We have to be able to recreate their circumstances. The body is so specific, and research does support the body is very specific. We have to emulate the specificity that is needed. So looking at that specific function versus peer-reviewed, appropriate, high-quality research where do you guys tend to fall or what do you think is most important to support the interventions we're providing a patient? Definitely, I can see both ends. Um, my last 20 years of experience as a physical therapist, um, that time we start talking about evidence-based. Then when I graduated from um, PT schools, evidence is everything. Then once I was thrown into the real world, I was trying to just go with evidence, evidence, evidence. At the same time, some like experienced therapists said because of their experience, it was difficult for me to understand. But at the same time, um, there is a great uh, clinical pulse from uh, lots of uh, experienced therapists. Uh, so just looking uh, fast forward since then, I believe both ends start kind of approaching, but definitely there is still a gap there. So it is our... Um, challenge in a way, maybe endless challenge, but definitely we can strive to minimize the gap for the future to provide the best uh, possible care for the client. So I would say I've probably gone from one extreme to the other and then settled somewhere in the middle. I would agree when I first came out, similar to K2, especially going through residency, we were reading and discussing evidence and looking at the orthopedic sections um, guide for each body part where it was just loaded with evidence and kind of an if-then statement kind type of approach. And so that really guided me for the first 
three, four years of my professional career, both during residency and then the start of my tenure at Spooner to the point that, you know, every so often Tim Spooner would come behind me in the clinic and be like, Hey, why are you doing that exercise? I'd be like, well, this is, this is why, and it's going to fire this musculature in this sequence, which is needed to translate to X, Y, and Z. And then it got to the point where that wasn't helping everybody. And so I went to the opposite end of the spectrum and I'm like, wait, my patients aren't responding to what the evidence would tell me the best approach is or the best series of exercises are. And I went to the opposite end of the approach where I just did everything from a functional standpoint. And then there came a point in the time where I wasn't getting people better on that approach either. So I would say I'm probably more on the right side of the middle now, realizing that there's a progression where I need to ensure that there's muscle firing, which would be supported immensely in the evidence, but also getting to that specificity component. So it sounds like you both kind of gone through your little trial and error process and you know, conducted kind of your own just research <laughs> through your professional career as far as what your patient needed. It was interesting well, before this, you know, K2, you talked a little bit about each patient being a case study. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by each patient is a case study and how that's going to impact your treatment. Thank you, Paul. Um, I believe each patient is different to start with. And the patient sitting in front of you is so complex in so many ways. And uh, PT school and the research did a great job to simplify some stuff. And, but just just based on the knowledge or outcome itself, it's going to, I believe, feels like limit myself. And uh, even same kind of presentation, each patient responds differently. From that, like may, um, I feel like there is more layers underneath of the patient. Uh, often we talk about body, mind, soul, all that three-dimensional stuff. And if we are just looking at the body, even just one component based on the research, I feel like I'm going to miss out all the opportunities so, to help them. So that's why I mentioned about case studies. Yeah, I, I love what you talk about there. And I, I tend to find so often with patients, it is so important to look at the test retest. You know, I, I think of a number of therapists, senior therapists that I, I looked up to that talked about, did you retest your intervention? Did you retry? Did you look for a change? Did you look for a difference? And I don't expect obviously everything to make this massive overarching change in function right away. But it's good to see, did I make an impact with it? Because I like to think through patients that there are exercises, and I could probably put in order things that are most likely to return a quad to firing. You know, after any type of surgery, it's going to de-innervate or decrease the ability to fire that muscle. And many of them might be open chain. But then after that's been fired, does it automatically transfer to translate to closed chain? I've seen it where it does. I've seen it where it doesn't. So you know, I have to do something different in closed chain to turn it on with that as well. I've seen it where it does work and I have to just kind of integrate the entire capacity. And I think of a patient Dan had where he couldn't get the thing to fire no matter what he did in closed chain and ended up getting some great advice from not a physical therapist, but just another healthcare provider that he's worked with for a long period of time. It was basically walk around with the patient and get her mind off of things. And oddly enough, she started walking with improved gait mechanics when he just kind of was a friend and just talked about life. And then that her body caught on, had a feeling, started firing, and then he found success with the interventions might be research-based to help further facilitate improvement. So just it's seen every end of the spectrum. That's why I love that thought of the, the case study, the end of one for each patient. I can prioritize what's most likely to help, but I can't guarantee it or the follow-up that's needed from it. 
So I want to ask a question kind of related to that N of one and how you both have mentored either a physical therapy student or a new grad who is very focused on the evidence and the evidence says that we should do this, this, and this. How do you, how do you coach them along to see the opportunities that a lot that exist with understanding the research that's out there, right? Being an evidence informed practitioner, but also valuing the N of one that is in front of them. I think kind of two answers to that question. One, I always want to make sure that they really are good consumers of research. I way too often find, especially students, they are overwhelmed with so many things they've had to learn and look at that they become that Reader's Digest version of consuming research and literature. And they look at the abstract and they read the <laughs> the introduction and the conclusion. Maybe the discussion as well, you know, uh, the results and to kind of see. And then they form so many things off of that without looking at what were the actual methods what was the actual group of people that were being studied? How do you know when to then best apply this? If you don't know what they did or who they looked at, how do you really know what was being studied and researched? And I, I am personally of the opinion that if you're going to tell me about a research article, you darn well better be able to tell me the methods in its entirety. It is literally the first section I go to when I'm interested in articles. Read the methods and see, does this apply to what I'm looking for? Or more importantly, who does this apply to? And I kind of keep it back in my brain. Maybe this isn't what I'm looking for in this patient, but it might be something my next patient does need. Or maybe my patient doesn't respond to the expected, but now I've got, okay, you don't fall perfectly in this demographic, but this did work. Let's attempt it as the next line intervention. So I want to make sure that they they understand what they're getting into, not just blindly following things. It's the whole idea, especially with students. Are you learning something to regurgitate for a test? Or are you truly understanding the concept that's in front of you so you can apply it appropriately to different people, in this case, test in the school version of things? Past that, assuming they are a, a good consumer of research, or at least developing and understand the importance, I just try to help them keep an open mind. I, I, I try to, I'm a big fan of the idea of evidence informed practice versus evidence based practice. We have to understand the evidence, I, I believe. To make an argument against it, but I think it's important to understand the evidence. It's important to understand what is most likely to be beneficial for a patient. And like I said before, you can kind of create the hierarchy or the totem pole of things that are, I believe, going to impact the individual. And I could ask that student what research says is the best. And if it does work, excellent, good. It's researched and effective for a reason. It's going to work in a large number of cases. But it's how to help them keep open to if that patient doesn't respond, what's your second thought? What's your third thought? What's your fourth thought? Or how are you going to test to make sure that the response was good? So you're not just saying research says this, go do it. It's a, research says this, go do it. Excellent. Assess the response. Make sure it is responding the way you anticipate and the patient is effective. And then what is your next piece of the equation to lead them to the end? Because I, one thing I don't find in research is A to Z. It's typically A to B, A to D. It takes you part of the way. Not many research studies can actually take you all the way through an entire rehab process because there are so many variables that are going to occur. How could you possibly look at every variable but also isolate the appropriate variables for a high-level research study? You, you can't. So it's a conglomeration of all a bunch of different research to get to the end picture. It's one that keep an open mind because I think they will eventually come across the patients that don't respond. 
but you know theoretically should and then eventually try other interventions and eventually kind of reach the same path that you did dan I, i think your example is a perfect example of what many therapists go through to some degree and some of it you can tell people others you kind of have to live it you kind of have to get there and just keeping people open to it will expedite the process in my opinion i just love what you said entire time you're speaking i was just nodding my head yeah i definitely i resonate whatever you said you know everything so i feel like one of the take-home message for me is like uh Evidence versus function. Some people may say research versus experience. Um, how are you going to utilize it? Either end, you know, then definitely like from the evidence-based um, practice. And definitely evidence is important. Research is important. At the same time, how are we going to utilize that research? Are we going to limit ourselves within the research? Or are we going to utilize that research to expand and our possibility for the success for the clients? Research provides specific conclusion on the spe- under specific conditions. And this is also applied for the specific population. When we think about, um, Dan and Paul, you talk about like, you know, large number of people versus n equals one, like one person in front of you. We have to think about bell curve at the same time, each individual unique, you know, uh, aspect of it. So that, um, also Paul, you said that like, Evidence provide that to help us to synthesize that priority of the treatment. But also at the same time, you know, once we start with our priority, priority one, priority two, didn't work, now what? When I joined uh, our work with Brett Fisher, this is what I saw. He saw, he understand the research at the same time, but he tried everything for in front of his clients. And he, looks like he's like an electrician like doing plug in plug out what seems to work for the clients then once light bulb goes off that is a starting point to start with that moment i was like wow i was just limited myself versus some people being open-minded trying to find what's best in front of the clients that really changed my mind so that like you know then like you said now i feel like i'm in the middle then trying to fill the gap so that is a kind of example I utilize for my uh, students to understand that, you know, gap, gap also is a gap between research and uh, function. I, I love that. It leads me to a question I want to ask both of you. How do you become comfortable with that? And so something that I have tend to find, at least my belief, I should say, and this is both for young and experienced therapists. I find those that really want protocols and want things that are researched to the idea that you're going to do this, 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 and this order, almost needed as a comfort zone. Mm. You know, they, they are realizing the true challenge we have out there of a lack of respect from the community. Oftentimes, lack of respect from other healthcare providers. And even when you've been doing it for a while and you have plenty of people that know your value, there's always new people coming through that you haven't met or don't have a knowledge of what you can provide. How do you go through and do this trial and error you talk about, K2, but feel confident in it and also portray to the patient that you know what you're doing and not just that I'm throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks for you because I don't know what you need? Good question. Just like you said, when I encountered um, some condition or surgical procedure I was not familiar with when I was younger, I really wanted to have protocol because just going with the protocol, I'm doing the right thing. At the same time, the more you practice, 
sometimes you realize just doing protocol itself is going to limit what you can do to best possibly help your client in front of your eyes, you know. So right now, what I think the number one is whatever I do is safe for the clients. So in order to understand that, you have to understand the physiology, also like, you know, specific uh, surgical procedure or condition. As long as it's safe, then now you're going to best assess the capacity of the client. Then you're going to create that program uh, based on that their success and the limitation so that once you can best assess their threshold, then you're going to provide the treatment or exercise creating some buffer zone between the threshold and what you provide, then you know it's safe. At the same time, you can kind of gauge uh, where you, uh, what, whatever you provide is where you reside in the functional spectrum or relation, in relation to the threshold. Then um, I'm gonna reassess myself and reassess the clients, then proceed. You know, I think that's a great question is how do you become comfortable. And one of the things I wrote down before you said it out loud was sometimes people use research as a security blanket and they will default to, well, that's not in the evidence, so I'm not going to do it. Right. So K2, I love what you said about first being safe, because I think that's something that we would all agree with that we are going to ensure the intervention that we prescribe for our patient is going to be safe. Where on the spectrum of safe does it lie? I think that that is up for debate and discussion, You're right? Saying Tim Spooner has a different definition of safe than you. Yeah, and I. I mean, he may say I'm going to push him as close to the ledge as possible while st still keeping them safe, but challenging their system. And I don't think that that's a bad thought process. And he may utilize a combination of four, five, six exercises where some are evidence based and some are function based to push that patient while still being safe and not compromising a surgical procedure or the tissue that's involved or severity irritability of that tissue, which that plays into everything that we know from a biological and physiological standpoint, right? So I would agree first and foremost that how I feel like I became more comfortable with that sliding spectrum of the two kind of polar opposites that you highlighted at the beginning is first my understanding of what is safe. Second would be I had to go and seek out additional things for me to improve my understanding of how the body is and functions. As K2 already mentioned in mind, body, spirit, in the principles of three-dimensionality or triplanar, however you want to phrase it, right? I had to go learn more to then be able to say, okay, now I feel like I have a better understanding of how to be safe, whether I'm aggressively approaching a different body part while conservative, conservatively approaching a involved body part or vice versa. I'm aggressively going after the body part that's involved and conservatively going after uh, an adjacent body part for various rationales, right? And I think the evidence would support both of those things. Post-op total knee, post-op ACL, we know early range of motion is the best, right? So I'm going to be aggressive within reason and still being safe on early range of motion in the knee while I might be conservative on 
stability exercises, right? So I think that part of being comfortable is knowing and, and having the security blanket of the research behind you to say, hey, this grouping of exercises is going to help recruit this musculature the best. But I have a question for both of you re re surrounding the security blanket kind of approach because I think we all need it and we all need to challenge the security blankets that are out there, right? Hence our title of more research is needed, right? The running joke in all of medical research. How, how do we continue to push the boundaries of safe and encourage our connections and or our fellow professionals to publish case studies, look at information differently? Like, how, how do we do that as a profession to really ensure that our body of knowledge is really progressing? That's a great question, Dan. It, it really is. A, it, it's a good question um, because there is so much, like you said, that we can look into that we still don't fully understand. And I feel like every time we get a better understanding, better technology comes along that lets us have a greater depth of knowledge in how things do function. You know, I, I agree so much with what you said with having a, a better knowledge for movement of the human body. And then you took that understanding and combine it with research you're able to help a patient understand that here's what's happening for you here's what your medical diagnosis says here's a number of different things that play into it you're a unique individual you're a unique person with unique challenges stresses life etc they have to find what works for you and i think that is one of those components then that how do you research that it's difficult to fall under it but we don't have enough people that write case studies to help get the thought process going. You know, I do tend to find when you look towards maybe like a neurological uh, diagnosis, you see more of the individuals that have that case study out there of that crazy circumstance, that just medically complex, insane, how did you find all of these factors that possibly came together? And then what did you do to try to tackle it? And it's really cool then to kind of read that case study and try to look through and think about, all right, how do I follow this practitioner's thought process? How do I follow where this practitioner started, realized success, didn't see it, changed, adapted, and went there? I think you see it in the traditionally more medically complex patients. And for some reason, we don't look enough at the complexity of your seemingly basic but truly varied orthopedic patients. We don't tend to appreciate all the things they've been through, the, the challenges their body has had. We look at like previous injuries, but how is their posture? How is the mechanics? What do they have? What factors are working against them? What are the, all the components of it? And when you find that medically complex patient there and talk about how you found success with them, or maybe even more so the person who doesn't appear medically complex, but didn't respond. And that's not a failure of the therapist. That's not you. If you followed exactly what literature and research says is the best intervention, you started in an intelligent and appropriate place. I doubt Bingo. you misassessed the patient. You found a issue. You found an impairment. You treated it with what is best practice. But we know that, or at least I have yet to find the research article that has 100% success for every single person that wasn't like an N of two, right? right? Yep. There are people that it didn't work with. And the question becomes, do we just write them off as individuals that are 
beyond our possible assistance and capabilities, or is there maybe a different route to go with them? You know, having some articles out there of this patient didn't respond to the expected, even though they fell into the category where they should have, what was the next process? How did you find them there? And getting some things published, or at least just describing those case studies at conferences, at educational seminars, wherever it is, looking through that complex individual in the thought of maybe not medically complex, but did not respond the way you would envision to complexity. We'd like to see more of that exist. Great, Paul. And also, um, Dan, great question. Safety blanket. Definitely, we all feel comfortable inside of a safety blanket because we feel like we're protected. At the same time, um, when we look back, our previous clients, oftentimes we wonder, how could we better assist the clients you know, to improve their functional return to the activity or sports? So I feel like sometimes like, you know, evidence or our criteria, whatever we may create, to proceed to the next um, activities in the rehabilitation. If we can just marry to it, or should I say maybe like evidence, we are using evidence as a destination, just rely on that. Maybe we cannot learn from it. At the same time, if we can use that research evidence as a starting point or kind of guidance, so that once utilize that guidance, then provide the care. But at the same time, looking back, reflect, then maybe we're going to start challenge ourselves to ask a better question. How could we utilize that uh, evidence or that criteria to best support the clients better? So maybe we can slide that you know, um, functional slide to either more strict or even more liberal to kind of figure out. I think creating subtle changes then closely monitor how the patient responds. I think we can learn a lot. At the same time, when we see number of clients, then looking back, then we can also, we have to define ourselves, like, you know, what success means. Is a success meaning when the patient be able to go back to the previous activity level as soon as possible? Or maybe like extreme case, some sport, longevity of the, you know, highest level they can play or sustain, you know. so. Endless question, but uh, I think that's a great question. All right, well, I'm going to throw another hopefully great question at you. Yeah. So, Paul, you kind of alluded to earlier that there's, there's a, and, and I fall into this trap as well, where I'll read the introduction, I'll briefly skim over the method section, and I'll go to the maybe discussion and conclusion, right? I want to speak a little bit, and I think this will also kind of help foreshadow with our second episode in this series, which will have a little bit more of a practical discussion, is how, how do you recommend, you know, for that, that person who is utilizing the evidence and they're struggling with getting muscle contraction in a, from whatever series of exercises they're utilizing, right? So I, I guess my question really is, how do we suggest or how do you suggest adjusting the method section of a study in the clinic to the end that is in front of them, right? So, you know, are we talking sets, reps, duration, load, speed, volume? Like 
all of those things because I'm thinking to some conversations we've had from some of our colleagues who are like, well, I've tried this, but they do it for two sessions and they abandon chip, right? So can you kind of highlight that a little bit, which will kind of also give us a precursor into our second episode of on in this series, not second episode period, but second episode <laughs> in this series of like how we can take something that has been proven to be successful and adjust the quote unquote methods in the clinic? Again, great question. Hey, it's just two today. Wow, what's gotten into me? And like you said too, you know, a lot of this, we wanna, we'll go a little more in depth in some of the following. We're actually going to take and look at some uh, reviews or opinion pieces and kind of dive a little deeper into some of the research that exists and, and answer this question more fully and more thoroughly. But to give you a simplistic answer, uh, I would just say yes. Hey, um, come on, you got to give me more than just a simple yes. <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to try to combine different pieces of research and use my knowledge of the body to my benefit. So what do I mean by that? Let's say that I have a patient that I am trying to get gluteal firing to improve. And let's use your example, Dan, of I actually was able to perform some intervention to improve glute firing, whatever it is. Maybe it was a clamshell or maybe it was a single leg squat, a pretty research-based open chain and closed chain exercise for improved glute recruitment, right? One of those two. Yep, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But after a couple sessions, I find myself stuck in they keep doing it and they come in, they recruit to an improved degree. They do fairly well. We come back the next time and I feel like I'm starting from the same point. They're not translating over to the next uh, session for me. Well, what else does research tell me? What else can I look at? Well, there's research that supports PNF patterns and developmental patterns. Understanding those movement patterns is something to help reintegrate muscle firing and movement when it's been lost. So that might mean that I do rolling or half kneeling or quadruped exercises to emulate things to help function translate. That might mean I have them on a table and go through diagonal patterns or um, pelvic diagonals or some other PNF technique. Or maybe I, once they are firing the glute muscle, start doing some combination isotonics or isometrics basically with different muscle firing patterns for the glutes in different positions. And I do that maybe supine to start and maybe I can actually find it to where you go into standing. I had an actual patient one time that's having a really hard time translating over effective glute firing session to session in closed chain uh, activities, but kept doing well open chain. So I had her stand and I started actually going through through and doing standing pelvic PNF diagonals and getting her to have to fire and work through patterns. And I found that translated a lot better than anything I did on the table. This is just me thinking through, well, literature talks about specificity of the body and literature suggests the benefits of understanding some of these interventions. So let's try to combine different things I know, or maybe I go towards, you know, for example, as a gift fellow for both of you, I talk about load to explode principles. Maybe I think about how, right, So they're doing some of the basic things for the glutes, but how can I use my knowledge of, maybe glutes not the great example because muscle striations are interesting on how you actually load this fully, but ignoring that piece of the equation, (laughs) how can I load or put additional stretch upon the glutes to allow it to explode into its motion more effectively? And does that translate over to the patient's function better than maybe the standard quote unquote, typical glute exercises. So everything I did, or at least just spewed at you right there, all has literature that supports it. 
varying degrees of quality, but it all has support. I'm trying to find what worked for that patient to help translate them over and not afraid of the fact that they didn't translate right away. And I couldn't have predicted that because there's research that shows that doing simple glute exercises in supine should translate to closed chain improvement. Should doesn't mean that it does. You started at the right part. You started where literature suggests to go. You saw how they responded. You then used other pieces of knowledge to help you find what that patient needed until you got success. Well, I think you hit on something there. <clears throat> you hit on a lot of things and, and beautifully interwove a vast understanding of research into your application of, of blending methods from so many different studies to help the patient in front of you, right? Which I think that is a huge gold nugget for our listeners to take home. You know, the other thing that I, I think you started to hit on is we know there's a certain, and, and EMG studies prove this on how many times a muscle fires during gait or a normal daily activity. But yet we as a profession so often only, and even in research studies, do three sets of 10 or three sets of 15 or three sets of 20, right? And but yet we know that there's five to 8,000 firings in a day, if not more than that, right? So I think that there's a component there where we as a profession fail. And, you know, Brett Fisher preaches this, that it's not our fault as a profession, that we weren't trained on the true understanding of the science of exercise and how do we load tissue and train tissue to get to the right level of fatigue and understanding the principles that it takes to get a type one muscle fiber to fire versus a type two muscle fiber to fire. And how do we sequence those two things and what is their purpose and the energy system behind it? So I think that part of it is, is going back to your example of, well, after two sessions, I abandoned ship or the therapist abandoned ship. Well, maybe they saw that patient coming back at the same start point because they didn't appropriately challenge it with the right duration or load or sets and reps, quote, from a volume standpoint to really get that muscle to say, wait, yes, now I'm firing, maybe in an isometric standpoint and getting motor neuron, motor unit recruitment, but now I actually have to do it from a volume standpoint to ensure that I have appropriate carryover, right? Like to quote Gary Wozlewski, an orthopedic surgeon here in the Valley, he is notorious for telling patients post-op knee surgery, I want you to do 1 million quad sets a day. 1 million. And patients laugh at him. And he's like, no, basically, you can't do this too many times because we know that the evidence is going to help from a motor recruitment standpoint. And you know what? I think he's spot on with that because then that makes our job easier because they're already doing the motor recruitment standpoint. And then we can translate that into different ranges of motion in different positions with different load. You bring up a great point, Dan. I think it's really easy to think about, oh, I have the athlete in front of me and I understand that, you know, they're going to have a 48 minute basketball game where they play 35 minutes and the, the challenge is it can be across their body. But for some reason, we tend to forget to translate that out to the average person, which is pretty much every patient that most of us are seeing <laughs> throughout the entire day. You know, the, for those that do work hardening programs, there are plenty of programs out there that it doesn't have to be this physically demanding, difficult job. It might be a program where they mostly stand and walk throughout their day and they have a couple of things they lift here and there. But the work hardening program is still going to be a four or five hour session because the truth is 
in your 45 to 60 minute PT session, you can't fully prepare them for a 10 hour shift. It's just not possible. So even if you have that patient who's relatively deconditioned and doesn't do a whole lot, but if we haven't prepared them for the 800 steps they take around their home 13 times per day, they're not going to be ready. And if your three sets of 10 is all you're doing, what else do we know that research says? Well, what happens when a muscle gets fatigued very quickly and you still try to stress it? Well, it might shut down because it's worried about injury happening. And then that shutdown might be what you're seeing that next session when it's not turned back on because we haven't given it success because we challenge it not in a successful way or a way that it could deal with. We challenge it for things it wasn't quite ready to do, which might be as simple as standing and walking. So you bring up a really good point that too often we pigeonhole ourselves into three sets of 10, two sets of 15, anything of the usual, and not think about what is that actual function that they need and what's the actual demand upon their body. I love what you said, both of you. And uh, so, so many things, you know, I resonate with you at the same time learn from you. So I want to kind of break down what you guys say so that that hopefully hit some points for the listeners. So both of you said like, you know, definitely like the importance of research out there. And many cases, including myself, sometimes we run into research because the research said this, this, this should work, should. But both of you said, actually witness what's happening in front of your eyes and said, when it is not working, instead of stopping there, or maybe then uh, asking proper question to yourself. That going back to the method, maybe those individual parameters, you know, uh, for the, being utilized for the research study, maybe you can manipulate that. Or, being more inquisitive about it than using the research outcome as one of the components of the checklist for the clients to get better. So Paul, you try that open chain you know, uh, activation. Then maybe within that open chain activation, patient made success, but didn't translate into carry over or function in the closed chain. Then you create a uh, synthesize the hypothesis why this link, uh, why this client's not getting there? What kind of link is missing in that in order to help these clients? So you create a, your hypothesis so that creating the progression of the treatment, you know, from the um, open chain to maybe supine to like half kneeling, standing, things like that. So that is to me, you are being open-minded instead of just closed-minded on research said this, I tried everything, done. So that comes with... Lots of uh, inquisitive, inquisitive mind at the same time, at the same time being open-mindedness. And then also lots of experience, you know, lot, lots of knowledge. And uh, also I believe you guys are uh, listening to your clients, watching your clients, hearing what they're saying. So that um, I think you're learning from the clients, then actually going back to test, retest, then what is working, what is not working, you have providing a fair assessment, then create a better outcome, I believe. So, I love it. And hopefully everyone has had a, a little bit of thought-provoking or a little bit of a different insight to how to use research. And I think, K2, you summed up things very, very nicely. But at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to just keeping an open mind. 
and looking back at how things have been for you with success for your patient and not feeling there is a perfect way. There's a way you can prioritize that might be based on research, might be based on your clinical expertise, might be based on a lot of things, but you're at least open-minded to what else exists out there. And we're excited to bring some future sessions to you where we're going to go a little more in depth and try to put some actual concrete examples behind the theory we've talked about today. Go through some research, go through some literature, talk about how we are trying to be good consumers of research and how you can use it, or sometimes even research that might not seem as beneficial where its benefits might eventually lie. So look forward to you joining us next time, listeners, to learn more about more research is needed. For now, thank you for listening. And as always, don't be afraid to reach out to us with any questions at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app.